As we interact with God's Word this morning, there are some messages that you prepare, you know, in a number of hours or a week. There's other messages that you work at and you work at and you wait weeks and you wait months and sometimes years. And as we interact with a topic this morning, and it's one of those that I preach differently this morning than I would have five years ago, much, much different than 15 years ago or 20 years ago, just because the more we live, or the more I live, I should say, what Scripture says, the more it gets a hold of me and the more it impacts my life. And I realize I am probably contrary to many pastors. I generally prepare my sermons months, sometimes years in advance. And that's by design so that I have opportunity to live them before I preach them. And this morning is one of those sermons that God has... Push me to live quite often over the years, particularly more recently. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for Christ humbling himself, coming to this earth to die, to rise from the dead. We're grateful for your work in our lives. And as we look at a theme that runs throughout Scripture. I look at several passages. We want to be open, attentive to your Spirit and his work in our lives. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thought question, not looking for a response. If you could choose one quality for God to build deeply into your life, what would you select? If you could choose one quality for God to build into your life in a very deep way, what quality would you select? What foundational quality is essential for church leaders and parents to be obedient to the Lord and to be fruitful? We're near the end of 2018, which is no great revelation. And about to enter a new year. As we enter 2019, we desire as a united local church to emphasize this core quality as we walk with God. As a pastor, I should walk in humility if our church is to be humble. Our elders and our deacons should walk in humility if our church is to be humble. Humility to church leadership is what blood is to one's physical body. What do Augustine, William Law, Jonathan Edwards, Andrew Murray, and C.S. Lewis all have in common? First, they concur that humility is the root of all virtue. It is the essential spiritual fruit, the one that is necessary for both conversion and sanctification. Secondly, they agree that despite its importance, it is the least emphasized virtue. William Law, who lived 1686 to 1761, said, 
Generally speaking, it is the least understood, the least regarded, the least intended, the least desired and sought after of all the virtues amongst all sorts of Christians. End of quote. Lowell also said, Humility is so essential to the right state of our souls that there is no pretending to be a reasonable or pious life without it. We may as well think to see without eyes or to live without breath as to live in the spirit of religion without the spirit of humility. End of quote. So why should we even listen to what God says about humility? William Farley says in his book, Gospel-Powered Humility, and I quote, Without humility, the Christian life will not be fruitful. Humility is a fertilizer that nourishes our souls and makes us fruitful. Without it, we lack zeal. We'll be unable to mourn sin and have little compassion and patience for others. In short, without the pursuit of humility, our souls will wither. End of quote. Augustine wrote, If you plan to build a tall house of virtues, you must first lay a deep foundation of humility. Andrew Murray said, Where God is all, self is nothing. Why do we need humility? I think it's pretty obvious that we need humility because we must be humble to come to Christ in repentance and faith. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, in the context of, again, spiritual hunger and people having spiritual need, come on to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come, but he says, I'm Humble. In the context of Matthew 11, along with parallel passages, it simply means that sin is seen from God's point of view. There's nothing we can do about it. Nothing. It's got to be of Christ. William Plummer wrote in The Grace of Christ in 1853, Tell me what you think of sin, and I will tell you what you think of God, of Christ, of the Spirit, of the divine law, of the blessed gospel, and of all necessary truth. He who sees no sin in himself will feel no need of a Savior. He who is conscious of no evil at work in his heart will desire no change of nature. End of quote. Andrew Murray says, In heaven... And on earth, pride or self-exaltation is the very gateway to hell. End of quote. Humility of brokenness is necessary to even come to Christ. But secondly, humility and brokenness is necessary if we're going to be sanctified in our daily living. Colossians 2, 6 and 7 say, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. Rooted and built up in him. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught. And overflowing with thankfulness. 
Just as you received Christ, how was Christ received? By faith. And faith springs from grasping sin, which ties in with humility. Andrew Murray says, It needs to be made clear that it is not sin that humbles, but grace. If we stop and consider sin, and that in Christ we have forgiveness of sin, we have a relationship with God, that humbles even more. Wayne Mack says, those who grumble and complain about the circumstances of their lives are manifesting a spirit of pride. A person who complains about his circumstances does so because he thinks he deserves better. Humility is needed for sanctification in daily, daily life. Humility is also needed for church leaders to display the, first, or the qualities of 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7. We're not going to read the passage, but there we find Paul lists the qualifications of elders, pastors, overseers, depends on which term you want to use. All of them tie in with character. Humility is at the root. Humility is required for intimacy with God. Jesus says in Matthew 5 and verse 3 in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the idea of blessed or the poor in spirit are those who say, I can't, I have nothing, I'm poor, I'm weak, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Ray Ortland Jr. says, America is self-ocratic, and the church is a little different. We are more American than we think we are, less Christian than we think we are, and all too content with what we are. Self-absorption is the mark of our age. End of quote. We also need humility to accept rebuke and correction. Proverbs 3 and verse 34 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. For me, for you, to accept rebuke or correction, we have to be willing to say, they're right, I'm wrong. What is humility? As you look at the Old Testament, and what I'm mentioning here in terms of definition of humility comes from many, many passages. But the Hebrew word for humility, the Greek word for humility, have the same idea and used frequently throughout Scripture. But the idea of humility in both Hebrew and Greek is lowliness, brokenness, no defense, contrite, I can't, I don't have the ability, I need help. 
under those terms. I don't have it. I need help. No defense. Can we come to Christ on our own? Can we produce the fruit of the Spirit in our own ability? Do we forgive deep hurt in our own strength? Do we do good to our enemy in our own strength? Do we rejoice in our trials in our own ability? Do we work, study hard as unto the Lord in our own capabilities? Do we trust God in our darkness on our own? Do we trust God when we can't explain God or figure Him out on our own? Humility chooses to obey God, Scripture, Christ, and dependency upon Christ. Humility, humility motivates holy living. <coughs> Babies express their need for help before they can talk by crying. Now, there's a stubborn cry, but there's also a cry that I need help. You can distinguish between the two. They need help. They admit that. They cry. In our day-by-day living, sometimes we'll say, God, this is hard. I can't. And he says, good, that's where I want you to be. So that Christ in you, as you yield to him, can respond. To forgive someone who has hurt you deeply. You say, I can't. Good. Because now you're at the place where you can say, God, I can't. I know I need to. I want to. But I can't. In Christ, I will choose to obey. You see a brother who, or a sister who is going astray. You say, I don't want to go talk to them. They might not be my friend anymore. I don't want to go rebuke them. I don't want to go correct them. But you do anyway, because you came to the point, I can't, but yet I'm to obey. I will. Andrew Murray says, humility is nothing but the disappearance of self in the vision that God is all, end of quote. Jonathan Edwards says, nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility. What is God's view of humility? Look at a passage or two here. In Numbers chapter 12, we find Moses He's leading Israel. (coughs) Miriam and Aaron complain against him. And in that context, the Bible says that Moses was the most humble man on earth. 
Remember, Moses did not seek the leadership of Israel. In fact, when God called him in the desert, he resisted. He gave four excuses, and finally he said, God, I don't want to go. And he went because God said, you will go. In the account of David versus Saul, we find that two men who were both king of Israel. But we find that they both face some sin and disobedience. Saul disobeyed in not killing the Amalekites. David disobeyed in pursuing another man's wife and having a child by her and so on. Both men were confronted by prophets. The difference is that Saul refused to admit he was wrong. When David was confronted by Nathan and Nathan said, you are the man, David agreed that he was the man. Saul was proud. David was humble. The passage I mentioned earlier in Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 30 Come on to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and take your yoke upon me, or my yoke upon you, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. Jesus was humbled. He had to be humble to come to this earth. Now he says, Come, follow me. But that requires humility. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, or 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 2 through 16. Paul there says, godly sorrow leads to repentance. Godly sorrow and humility tied together. Let's take our Bibles and turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. James is very, very, you say, might say practical in so many ways. And he begins chapter 4, he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Apparently, the people he was writing to had some fights and quarrels. We don't know the extent of it. We don't know the nature of it. But to have fights and quarrels among believers is not new. You know, it's been happening since the beginning of the church. But beyond the church, you go back to the beginning of time, there's fights and quarrels also. He goes on in verse, goes on verse 1. Don't they come from your desires, that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Well, there's some friction among believers that springs from selfish ambition and earthly wisdom, according to chapter 3, verses 13 through 16. But anyway, they even prayed, but he says, you know, God's not responding because you want to consume it upon your own pleasures. And then notice what he says in verse 4, you idolatrous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? The way the question is asked, the obvious answer is, yes, friendship with the world is hatred towards God. What is friendship with the world? Again, context, I think, determines it. Friendship with the world 
in light of verses 1 through 3, is to look out for self. It's what the world looks out for. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live within us envies intensely? God has given a spirit. He's writing to those who are believers in Christ. And there's some debate on how to interpret, you know, the spirit envies intensely. I would be of the interpretation that dealing with the Spirit of God, living within a believer, and God wants all the believer, doesn't want him to be part of the world, friendly to the world. But he gives him more grace, he says in verse 6. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes a guy like King Saul, but he gives grace to King David. God opposes the one who's unwilling to forgive, but gives grace to the one who is willing to forgive. God opposes the one who is unwilling to admit their wrong and seek forgiveness, but gives grace to the one who is willing to say, I was wrong, I will go and seek forgiveness. God opposes the man, the husband, who's not willing to love and lead his wife. But he gives grace to the husband who's willing to seek to love and lead his wife and say, I can, I need your help. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There have been points in my own life where God very strongly opposed me. Because of pride. There have been other points in times where God's grace was just overflowing. And one point in time where God opposed me was when someone came to me and said to me, Pastor, and mentioned a specific issue in my life And part of me wanted to just jump out of my chair and say, who do you think you are to talk to me? I said, would you please explain to me what you mean by what you just said? And the person explained. And I'm still pastoring today. Because God opposed me. Because the person who talked to me brought up something that would have in time destroyed my ministry, my involvement in ministry. So he says in verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn. And wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Humble yourself of brokenness in this context, of brokenness for their following the world, being selfish, having selfish ambition and so on. And saying, okay, God, 
will humble ourselves. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you find that Jesus confronts the seven churches, and of the seven, five of them, he says, repent. Be broken, be lowly, recognize your need to cry out to God. The root of humility, see sin for what it is. It's against God. And in our nature, it means an unbeliever separated from God. One Christian said, no matter how badly you think of yourself, no matter how guilty you feel, no matter or no matter deep, how deep your sense of moral bankruptcy and failure, you've not seen or not yet seen the depth of your sin. It's always worse than you think. William Plummer years ago wrote, The truth is, no man has ever seen through himself, or I'm sorry, the truth is, no man has ever thought himself a greater sinner before God than he really was. There was any man more distressed of his sins than he has just cause to be. See sin for what it is, but also see grace for what it is. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, we find that Paul talks about the fact that you're dead in transgressions and sins. You follow the God of this world, the ways of this world, and you know the desires of your own sinful nature, and by nature you're children of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. That talks about the fact that he seated us in the heavenly realms with Christ. That's grace. We say grace is a free gift. Yes, grace is a free gift to us, but not to God. Grace involved Christ taking upon himself the form of a servant, being made in human likeness, and then being coming obedient to the death, even death on a cross. Sin Seeing grace and meditating upon the Lord for who he is and his nature, his names, his works. Meditating much upon God. And the fourth thought concerning the root of humility, embrace hardship. Embrace trials. That is totally contrary to the world in which we live. But embrace them. When was the last time you talked to someone who was going through some type of hardship and difficulty and they said, I'm embracing it, I'm hanging on to it, I don't want to let it go. 
Take your Bibles and to go to Romans chapter 5. Paul has dealt with sin in Romans 1, 2, and 3. The end of chapter 3, he deals with Christ and Christ coming in the sense that he is through faith in Christ that there can be a righteousness. Chapter 4, he deals with justification through faith. Then in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Boy, good stuff there. Justified, declared righteous. We have peace with God. We have access into God's grace, and we can rejoice in the hope that's coming in the future. But he goes on in verse 3. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Not only so, we don't only rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character gives hope. And embracing a clinging to and accepting of the difficulty in life because those items drive us to see our weakness. And that's why Paul said, In my weakness, I recognize I need Christ. Andrew Murray says, Many Christians fear and flee and seek deliverance from all that would humble them. Many Christians fear and flee and seek deliverance from all that would humble them. And it seems to be that many times it's the trials and difficulties of life that humble us. To say, God, I need you. Enjoy the good times. Praise God in the midst of them. Yes. But when there's pain and difficulty, embrace. Because it will help us to be humble. We wrap it up, just a couple of thoughts on steps to humility. This is not a how-to, just a couple of thoughts. A lifestyle of meditation on God's names, attributes, and works. Just think a lot about God. Think about God, who he is, what has he done? Meditation of Christ as revealed in the Gospels. Read the Gospels, who is Christ, what has he done? Just thinking about who Christ is and what he has done. Meditation upon yourself apart from Christ and who you are in Christ. Think a little just about where you might be if it weren't for Christ and his work in your life, where you are because of being in Christ.
Meditation upon Scripture. A lifestyle of confession and repentance. I know I mentioned this before, probably been a while, but I've been asked in the past, you know, do you confess your sins before you go to bed? And my answer is no. I don't confess my sins before I go to bed. And some people would say, why not? Because I usually don't have any sins to confess before I go to bed. And you say, that sounds like a lot of pride. No. As God shows me sin in my life, I deal with it at that point in time. So when it's time to go to bed, I've handled them throughout the day. That's what I'm talking about when a lifestyle of confession and repentance rest in God's sovereignty. Anytime we fight what comes into our life, we're fighting the sovereignty of God. Anytime we fight what comes into our life, we're fighting the sovereignty of God. Because what comes into our life has been allowed by God has come through his hands, even if it's because of the work of Satan as you look at the book of Job. Resting in the sovereignty of God enables us to be humble and say, God, I need you. I can't handle it. And for what it's worth, limit your exposure to media, news, entertainment. They take you to the world's way of thinking and beliefs that let God out. I'm not saying news and media and so on is wrong. I'm encouraging you to limit it. Augustine said, should you ask me, what is the first thing in religion? I should reply, the first thing, the second and the third thing, there is humility. Paul says as he begins the Aspect of living out Christ in you in Ephesians 4 and verse 2, be completely humble. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6, humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hands, that he may lift you up in due time. A simple question Do you desire humility? You will find from Genesis through Revelation there's a thread that runs. Humility and the flip side of pride. God produces works in our lives for us to be humble, but at the same time we choose to be humble. What direction of life are you going or do you want to go? Let's pray together. Father, we would desire to be humble people. But in even expressing that desire, 
we have to confess that pride comes up again and again, individually, within the family, within our church and other churches. So in 2019, Father, may we pursue humility, build it into our lives. May we seek to apply the one another's so that we may come to be more and more dependent upon Christ, who is our life. Keep us sensitive, Father, to you, to Christ, and to the fact that you have begun a work in us and you continue that for your glory. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.